Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 12. My suspicion is that almost everyone here has at least once in your life looked forward to making a trip and then later looked back with great regret at having made it. I remember looking forward as a boy to a golf trip with my family to the East Coast. We were going to some supposedly wonderful golf resort on the Atlantic Ocean. We got there one day before a hurricane hit. So we didn't play any golf. That is where I learned to play gin rummy because all we could do is stay in the room and play cards. That was rather a disappointing trip. I remember one time being asked to speak in Weyburn, Saskatchewan. And I was so excited because I had always wanted to see Canada and I'd heard how beautiful it was and I figured we'd hike a few mountains and maybe go moose hunting. And I landed in the airport near Weyburn, Saskatchewan in the middle of the largest, flattest wheat field I had ever seen. Because all Weyburn, Saskatchewan is, is Kansas farther north. (laughs) And it was still a wonderful people to be with, but the trip didn't turn out to be what I was hoping it would be. We've all been in spots we wish we had never come to. The good news is our God is rich in wrong place grace. You'll remember that Abraham has answered this call of God to leave his country, his culture, and his kin. And he's gone to this place he did not know he was going to. This place called Canaan. And he gets there and God says, this is the place. And he pitches his tent and he builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. But now look at with me in verse 10 of chapter 12. Now, there was a famine in the land. Okay, just stop a second and ponder that phrase. You have come all this way and given up everything you knew to get to a place where there's a famine? There was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now, remember, where had Abram spent his entire life? In Ur or in Haran in what the ancients called the Fertile Crescent. He's lived all his life by major water supply with plenty of good pasture. And his Wealth is the kind that is affected by famine. He needs water and he needs pasture. He maybe is thinking to himself, wait, I thought this was supposed to be a land of blessing. And he went back to that old kind of thinking. That kind of thinking he had back in Ur and back in Haran, where he had learned the value of living by a river. And so he listened to his fears instead of to the word of God. It says, Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. In other words, he went to depend on the Nile. He thought to himself, where is the closest major water supply I can find? It was a man-centered decision. And it was a faithless one. Because Abram, write this down, he let his problems trump God's promises. 
Had God brought him to this land to starve? Was this famine mightier than God's announced future? You see, Abram did what a lot of us do in hard times. He saw God through the lens of his difficulties. Instead of seeing his difficulties through the lens of God's promises. You know that in Scripture, especially in the prophets, Egypt stands for worldly alliances. The prophets are constantly saying to the children of Israel, don't go to Egypt. Don't depend on Egypt. Depend on the Lord your God. But the temptation to trust human resources instead of promise is always great. And so Abraham did what the old Abram knew to do. He found the biggest river he could find. The problem with humanistic solutions, though, is they never solve spiritual problems. The problem was not a shortage of water. His problem is a shortage of faith. And the man that strayed from the land is soon going to find himself straying from the truth. Look what happens. Verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. The loss of faith will always lead to a loss of courage. Always. Now, Abram knew that his wife was quite stunning. Now, the interesting thing is that she was, at this time, at least 65 years old. So why was she still considered so beautiful? Two thoughts. One was that back then people lived longer and aged slower. But I think the main reason she still looks so good is because she didn't have any kids. And that's just my theory. <laughs> but I'm telling you, we can all look at pictures of what we were like before kids and what we're like after we've raised kids. Our kids are killing us. <laughs> and so she's 65 years old and she still looks hot. And Abram knew how pagan kings like to collect trophy wives. He's already failed to trust God with respect to the famine. So why would you expect him to trust God with respect to the Pharaoh? How's he going to live by faith concerning his wife when he's not living in the land where faith would have kept him? You see, Abram is not just in the wrong place geographically. 
He's already settled for one humanistic solution. Let me find a river. So now he's going to settle for another. Tell him you're my sister. And by the way, it was a half truth because you'll find later in Genesis 20 that Abram and Sarah had the same father, but they had different mothers. She was a half sister. I'm reminded of the story of uh, the mama that caught her little boy in a lie. And she says, do you know what the Bible says about lying? What does the Bible call a lie? And the little boy said, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of need. (laughs) That's what Abram thought. And so he told what he convinced himself was a half-truth. And his half-truth was a complete lie because of its motive. This is just a side thought, but it's very interesting to discover or study the times in Scripture when people lie and what God says. For example, consider Rahab, the prostitute, and she hides the spies when the people of Israel are about to enter the land. And she is called a woman of great faith for telling a complete lie. She deceived the people of Jericho to save the spies. But she's in Hebrews 11, a woman of faith. You see, in the first place, her lie was an act of faith. Here she is, this pagan woman who has only heard about this Yahweh God of Israel. And she concludes that this Yahweh is the true God. And she is going to throw her lot in with this God and not her own gods. Her lie was showing her faith in God. Abram's lie was showing his lack of faith in God. Her lie was to protect others. His lie was to protect himself at the expense of others. His selfishness is evidenced by his willingness to sacrifice his wife on the altar of situation ethics. And his faithlessness is evidenced by his willingness to endanger the fulfillment of God's promise. Remember, God's entire promise hinges on one thing that must happen. He must become a father. And now he is going to give up the woman through whom that promise has to come. And the bearer of the promise has suddenly become the greatest enemy of the promise. You know the most amazing thing about this text is Sarah's obedience. That she did What Abram said. I think this sheds light on an interesting passage all the way over in 1 Peter chapter 3. Where Peter writes to women who are married to unbelieving husbands who can be harsh. And he says to them, you be modest and you be humble and you be uh, obedient to your husbands. Like Sarah was calling Abram Lord. You say, but Sarah wasn't married to an unbelieving husband. Well, in this text she was. Abram, in this moment, is an unbelieving husband. Now, his compromise gained him a lot of stuff of the world. Livestock, servants, wealth. But I wonder how much comfort that stuff brought him as he slept alone in his tent. He was in desperate need. Of wrong place grace. And he was about to get some. 
Verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. God showed up to redeem the mess. Some people read their Bibles and they seem to think that God didn't become a Christian until the New Testament. When the fact is, God didn't discover grace until Jesus appeared. Grace has been God's story from the start. He has, now listen, this is important. God has always, even under the law, God has always dealt with men on the basis of his steadfast love rather than on the basis of what they deserved. That is always how God has dealt with men. You see, God let his goodness trump Abraham's weakness. And God was keeping his promise to bless the man in spite of his character, not because of it. Because God will be faithful even when man is faithless. But now, notice, part of extending wrong place grace was exposing Abram's sin. It is Grace on God's part to expose our folly when we have gone to the wrong place. God had called Abram to bless the nations. And instead, he has become a curse to a nation. And so Abram had to endure the humiliation of being rebuked by a pagan. Because even pagans know adultery is wrong. And you don't take another man's wife. And Abram's witness was destroyed by his duplicity. If you can't believe what a man says about his wife, how can you believe what he says about his God? You see, grace in the wrong place does not always remove the consequences of faithless actions. Abraham needed to be restored to the land of promise. But more than that, Abraham just needed to be restored. And he knew it. Because he wasn't just in the wrong place geographically so notice our final reading tonight what Abram did chapter 13 verse 1 so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him 
Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel. To the place between Bethel and Ai where he, his tent had been earlier. Notice. And where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He intentionally returned to the place where he had called on God. Why Bethel? He went where he could confess his sin and where he could re-pledge to the promise. The altar reminded Abram of the folly of what Ur and what Egypt called wisdom. That he could leave any place but the place where he could meet God. And he learned his lesson. We'll see this as we study. But even next week when we talk about the quarreling between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And Abram is going to say to Lot, you just take wherever you want to take. You go. Because Abram would never again depend on a water supply to decide where he needed to be. He would depend the rest of his life on God for provision. I'm not going to say he's not going to make mistakes. In fact, we're going to see in our study, he'll make some more mistakes. But he will never again leave the land of promise. He will spend the rest of his life finding grace in the right place. He will spend the rest of his life with an altar nearby. Now, what can we learn from this incredible story? A lot of things. We just have time for three. Here's the first. Remember this. Canaan always has challenges. Remember that very first phrase? There was a famine in the land. Wait a second, I thought if I get all the way to Canaan, I'm not going to have any more problems. Canaan doesn't mean the removal of difficulties. Following God doesn't mean problems can't follow you. Now, this is hard for some to hear. In fact, you can hear many people preach, and I don't want to impugn their motives because I don't know what their motives are, but you'll hear many people preach and imply if you'll just give your life to God, if you'll just surrender to Christ, your life will get better and your problems will go away And i got to tell you, in the first place, my own experience doesn't validate that. But second, I don't think Scripture validates that. I think Scripture says very clearly in places like James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it is through testing and through trial that God develops us into the people He wants us to become. Here's the thing about God. Now, He can birth an Isaac in a moment. In a moment, He can birth Isaac. But it takes time to develop an Abraham. It takes time to build the kind of character in a man or woman where they never doubt God again. And the only way the Bible says that kind of character can be developed is through tests. Canaan is not a land without challenges. It's a land where challenges are met with a new 
kind of thinking. Where we see our challenges through the lens of God instead of the other way around. It's the place where promise trumps problems. And my guess is some of you were never told that when you entered the land. And so perhaps your first years of following Christ were pretty discouraging. Because somebody misled you to believe if I can just get to Canaan, my problems will go away. Here's the truth. It takes more faith to stay in Canaan than to get there. It takes more faith to be a Christian than to become one. Because Canaan always has challenges. Number two, Egypt always has disappointment. Always. Egypt is always a trip you regret having made. That's because Egypt, which stands for the world, never delivers all its promises. You say, well, look at all Abram gained. Well, yeah, he gained a lot of stuff. Look what he lost. He lost his integrity. He lost his witness. He lost his peace of mind. He lost his closeness to God. And my personal guess is those first few nights with Sarah back in the tent weren't very fun either. It's a trip he would pay for for years. You notice it says he got many men and maidservants from Egypt. One of them was named Hagar. And we will read later where her influence and her presence caused Abram to make a decision he would later regret. You will notice in the next week that when Lot is given the choice of where to live, he chooses the place next to Sodom. And you know why? The Bible says it looked like Egypt. Lot would battle the rest of his life with a great lust for stuff. And it was birthed in Egypt. And Abram would spend the rest of his life Regretting this trip. Egypt seduces, but it never produces. Because we're all good Christians, we're all rejoicing at the start of football season. I came across an article written years ago by a preacher named Stuart Briscoe, a wonderful preacher he's from England and he writes about the very first time he ever came to America and it was on January the 1st now he's a young Englishman who's never been to this country and doesn't know our culture and our hobbies he says it was January 1st when I arrived I turned on the television and I saw a picture of life which I had never seen before it was a rear shot of a row of big men in tight pants 
bending over in such a fashion they appeared to be putting intolerable strain on said pants. Behind them stood a man yelling and shouting. After much shouting, they gave him a ball. He promptly gave it to one of his friends who ran a few steps and was treated to an awful beating by some other men wearing similar type pants, but of a different color. After repeating the outrageous procedure several times, the man with the ball suddenly threw it about 60 yards to another man I hadn't noticed before. He caught it and ran a few yards, did a funny little dance, and the crowd went wild. I thought I had stumbled onto some religious festival and was completely mystified until someone started to explain what was happening so that a newly arrived Englishman could understand. It appeared that the quarterback had so effectively faked a handoff to his running back that the defensive line and linebackers had played the run, leaving the receiver open to catch the pass and go for a touchdown. And it all happened because the defensive players chased the man without the ball. Moral of the story. If you're free to pursue happiness, don't be faked into pursuing it where it isn't. There will always be the promise of a better river. If you'll just leave your altar. And the good news is God specializes in wrong place grace. And every one of us can raise our hands and say, I can tell you of a time I got grace when I was in the wrong place. But don't interpret wrong place grace as God's confirmation of your trip. What it was, was an altar call. That's point number three. Bethel always has room. If God's grace can shower on you in the wrong place, how much more can it drench you in the right place? Years ago, I came across a story I've told before by Dr. Joe Harding that I think is just precious. True story of a young couple. And they were having the financial pressures that young couples have And the man and woman determined it was time to ask his boss for what was, frankly, a deserved raise. But they had no idea how the boss would react. So she kissed him goodbye, promised to pray. He went, and that afternoon he summoned his courage. He went into his employer, and to his delight, his boss gave him a raise. Well, he couldn't wait to get home and tell his wife. He comes in the door, and there in their little dining area is a beautiful table set with their very best china from their wedding. The candles are lighted. It's obvious she's gone to a bunch of trouble. She has prepared a festive meal. He figures somebody's tipped her off. So he goes in and he gives her the good news that he got the raise and they embrace and they kissed. They sat down to a wonderful meal. And next to his plate, he found this beautiful lettered note that said, Congratulations, darling. I knew you'd get the raise. These things will tell you how much I love you. Well, she got up after supper to go into the kitchen to get dessert. And as she did, he noticed a piece of paper had fallen out of her pocket. He picked it up off the floor and he read, Don't worry about not getting the raise. You deserve it anyway. These things will tell you how much I love you. The Bible says there is an altar. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And no matter what happens, no matter where you've been, no matter what you did, there's room for you there. You can always go there and expect grace. Here's the thing about God. If you want to go where you don't belong, God doesn't stop the prodigal from going to the far country. But he's always on the porch to welcome him home. Perhaps tonight you need to come to the place of grace. Hear the words of the Hebrew writer. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he's faced all of the same temptations we do. Yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it. Anybody in need of a little more grace tonight? I'd like you to do something. If you can, if you can't, that's okay. I don't ask you to do this often, but I'm asking now to get on your knees for just a moment. Because the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. And throughout Scripture, people on their knees are humbling themselves before God. If you're able and willing, get on your knees. And I just want you to think about some place in your life where you would like to ask God for grace. And in just a moment, you'll hear a a short song sung over you. You just keep on praying. Let's just take a moment. Let's ask for what only God can give. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your great compassion, blot out my many transgressions, and wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my many transgressions and wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. Oh God, we thank you for all of the times you sent us grace in the wrong place. Even if it meant exposing our sin. But we thank you even more that there's never been a no trespassing sign in front of the cross. There's always been room Because we need grace. 
And Father, we thank you for challenges and trials. We thank you for anything in our life that has put us on our knees. Caused us to abandon dependence in the flesh. And increased our confidence in you. Continue to teach us, God, that promise is greater than problems. And thank you, God, that every time in Jesus' name we have sought grace, the answer in Christ has always been yes. To you be all the glory. Amen. Let's all be standing now. We're going to sing one more song. To give anyone tonight who would like the chance to come confess Christ and be baptized. To have that wonderful moment in front of witnesses as we praise the Lord together.